Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, teleseminars, and seminars. And I am very, very thrilled uh, to have with me today, it took a long time for us to make our schedules work, so I'm so excited, Uh, Mike Scully. Let me tell you a little bit about Mike. Mike is an Emmy and WGA award-winning writer-producer and has been an instrumental part of The Simpsons since 1993. He co-wrote and co-produced the Simpsons movie, in addition to working on the TV show. He was a writer-producer on the Emmy-winning Everybody Loves Raymond and is currently a consulting producer on Parks and Recreation, which received its first-ever Emmy nomination as as soon as Scully left the show, causing him <laughs> to come crawling <laughs> this season out of sizable pay cut. I love that. He co-created with Julie Thacker the live-action comedies The Pits and Complete Savages. Although both shows were canceled years ago, during their first season, he remains guardedly optimistic about a second-season pickup. (laughs) While continuing as a consulting producer on The Simpsons and Parks, Scully is currently showrunner for FBC's animated series based on the indie film Napoleon Dynamite, which premieres January 2012. So set your TiVos now. Uh, Also, I want to give you a little bit about his start. Um, Mike is originally from West Springfield, Massachusetts. He graduated high school in 1974 went to community college for half a day and quit. I love that. I love, you know, that shows you. I mean, it's good. I want everyone to understand out there, everybody comes from different backgrounds. And and it's all about the work and the talent. Uh, Then seven years later, he moved to Los Angeles, performed at open mic nights, wrote jokes for Yakov Smirnoff, taught himself to write scripts by buying and studying used TV scripts, wrote 11 spec scripts, got a freelance assignment on the facts of life that was never produced because the showrunner, Paul Haggis, left the show and eventually wound up staffing on forgettable shows like What a Country, (laughs) Out of This World, and Top of the Heap, starring pre-friend star Matt LeBlanc. Okay, I... I love like the whole way you describe your background. It's so it shows your voice first of all, which is fantastic, <laughs> and I'm such a huge fan of it. I have to Thank tell you. you. Um, so I am. Uh, I'm very impressed with your list of credits, and certainly the work that I've seen that you've done. I love so many of the shows that you've worked on. Um, at what age did you begin? to make people laugh and see your strength with humor? At what age? Um, six months. Uh, <laughs> I think I had a hilarious ultrasound, as I recall. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I don't know. Probably in you know, elementary school. Um, I was always kind of torn because I was 
uh, I got good grades in elementary school. I was a good kid. <laughs> and uh, that's a but, good uh, thing. <laughs> in, uh, but I enjoyed getting laughs also, and I, I seemed to know how to do it. And and uh, I just I watched, you know, comedies constantly on television. You know, the the Smothers Brothers and uh, um, you know Jackie Gleason and, and yeah. George Carlin and all. And then. But yeah, in high school, my uh, sixth grade teacher started a, a school newspaper and made me the editor of it. And he just basically let me do what I want. I got to write these kind of crazy stories. And he didn't care if they made sense or not. <laughs> he just kind of let me run wild. And uh, by junior high school, by eighth grade, I had made the conscious decision, are you going to be one of the smart kids or are you going for class clown? And I, I chose the clown route and my, oh, my grades okay. plummeted, <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> which is why I didn't wind up in Harvard. <laughs> I love that, though. I mean, it, I love the idea of the dilemma I'm in. Do I want to be with the intelligent group or the class clown? I love that. I think that's great. Yeah, for some reason, I didn't think you could do both. Now right. I, I work with all these people who <laughs> went to Harvard <laughs> and are super funny. Uh, for some reason, for me, I thought there was a choice you had to make. <laughs> <laughs> you missed that. <laughs> no one told you. I love that. Um, now, um, what would you say... What fuels you as far as making people laugh? Oh, um, I, boy, I, I like I just anything that I guess that basically makes me laugh. I'm hoping that somebody out there will find funny. I, I don't believe you can like every joke can be for everybody, because if you're doing something that with that broad of an appeal, there must be something wrong with it. <laughs> right. uh, but um you know the things that make me laugh are it's a pretty wide spectrum of stuff i love you know whether it's a, a just a physical slapstick you know broad humor but i also love really you know uh clever you know verbal stuff i mean that's why the simpsons has been such a great show because it kind of runs the gamut of you know, lowbrow to highbrow to references that I don't even understand. Right, <laughs> uh, right. But that's part of the fun is we just kind of shoot in all every direction. When you're working on a show like The Simpsons or any comedy for that matter, do you do things like go to a bunch of comedy shows and watch other comedy to for inspiration? Or is it something that you kind of just absorb life and, and kind of bring your it into your voice on these shows? Yeah, I think, you know... Um, yeah, you bring your own voice and your own life experiences uh, into the show. I think that's you know a lot of like the best contribution you can make, and your ability to kind of channel, uh, you know, yourself through these character voices that are already created there for you. I mean, that's what you're there for is to to be able to write you know their you know point of view and make them funny. Uh, I think that's the biggest ability of all. The worst thing to do, I think, is to try to jam your opinions into a character's mouth. That it doesn't really sound right coming from, right. Uh, and you know, once in a while you'll see that, particularly if somebody has kind of a political agenda. Maybe one episode, some character will get fiercely political, or, right. or uh, you know, and that will slip, you know, s slip through. But um, yeah, I, I I think you just have to. It, it's that ability to kind of get those characters in your heads and speak through them and think like them, and make it funny at the same time. Well, I would imagine, like you say, like getting the voices down, um, whether it's comedy or drama, is certainly one of the challenges uh, of doing it. Do you feel with comedy a tremendous amount of pressure with regards to the jokes? Like when you look at the different shows you've worked on, like The Simpsons versus Parks and Recreation, 
looking at the placement of the jokes, how how much pressure goes into that? Uh, a lot. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of pressure goes on because you, you want to always feel like you're coming up with something new and fresh and, uh, you know, something that hopefully, you know, that the audience hasn't seen before. Um, uh, and you want it to feel true to that show that you're working on, whether it's, you know, Simpsons or Parks and Recreation or Napoleon Dynamite. You want to feel like it's something that character would say and, right. and be funny. So there's a lot of emphasis on the jokes. Um, but, you know, the, the biggest emphasis at all is, is on the story and making sure that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, once that works, you can you'll find your jokes. Right. Uh, but the making the story make sense is the, is the toughest part. Uh, you know, I like to hear that. And I feel like comedy over the last several years, you know, has gone through a lot of change. And I actually think comedy and drama are borrowing so much from one another and recognizing the value of having a balance of both. So uh, when it comes to strong stories, so mm -hmm. it, it it is great to see that with your comedy. So curiosity wise, do you test out your jokes on people before or <laughs> is there not time with the schedule with getting churning these shows out? No, you kind of get your chance to test it out. Um, you know, basically, when you have a table read, right. you get to hear things read out loud Um you know, or like during, you know, the rehearsal process, which on multicam, you get to see it a few times right. before it, it's filmed. But in single camera, you, you don't. Uh, so you got to kind of go with, you know, what you heard at the table and make sure that sounded funny to you. Uh, and then once you get down on the floor, you, you do have kind of a last chance maybe to tweak something on the fly. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's um, tough. Animation is it's kind of neat in that you get a chance to see it. Um, you you have your table read and record, and then you don't see it for several months. Mm -hmm. So you get to kind of look at it again with fresh eyes. Oh, that's great! Which is uh, yeah, that's nice. Big. It gives yeah because sometimes you can figure out a problem that for some reason you couldn't figure out at the time. A couple months go by, and you come into it fresh, and you're suddenly able to find answers that you couldn't you know find before. Oh, I think that's great. That is a big thing. That's good to yeah. know about. Or or you also have the ability to overthink something that was already working right, and right. screw it up. So. Exactly. If only I could go back. <laughs> yep. But that's all part of it. Like I look at TV oh, yeah. as such a platform. For example, I saw in the trades today and it broke my heart that Playboy got canceled and I thought, isn't it fascinating because for me the script was one of the best pilot scripts written this year, but it didn't transfer as well to the screen. And it's like you're you're just a lot of times have you with pilots and stuff, have you had the experience of developing pilots and them working or not working? Oh have no, you... I've had nothing but success. <laughs> 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 yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, you you write a pilot and uh, my wife and I have uh uh, written a few together, um, and we were lucky that you know a couple of them actually got on the air uh, for several consecutive weeks. <laughs> and, you and uh, your wife write together. Uh, yeah, we do a lot of like uh, original work together. Usually, we'll do pilots together. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of fun. And uh, what is the story behind your meeting? Oh God, we met uh, years and years and years ago. Uh, we were uh, working on a show together. Uh, and we just kind of, you know, hit it off, and made each other laugh. Oh, and, I love uh, that. Yeah. So the, and you, you have know, kids. And uh, we have kids. We have five kids. Wow. Yeah. All girls. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, we actually have a grandchild now. Oh my yeah. gosh! Congratulations. Thank you. I, not that I did anything. So the kids, the kids have the kids been a great part of the comedy, like really drawing stories. From? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You you take from every part of your life. I think you you draw from your own childhood uh, for stories. You and then you draw from your adult life. You know, as a as a parent, as a as a husband, you know, whatever, or things your kids do. And yeah. So, yeah, oh, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, the stories that resonate the most with people are the ones you pull from real life. Yeah, uh, definitely. Because, you know, you, you think it's an experience that's, you know, like uh, that's, that's only about you, but then you find out a lot of people have, you know, shared similar experiences. Raymond was, was great at that. Raymond was one of those shows that people would watch it. And, and I was a fan of the show long before I was a writer on the show. Right. But my wife and I would watch it and you would see like arguments that you've had kind of played out in right. front of you. But for some reason when they did it, it was much funnier. Right. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. But you can point at the TV and go, that's you or that's yeah. us or that's our parents. And uh, I think that's a great feeling uh, when, when, when TV is able to connect with the audience on a personal level like that. Well, like Steve Levitan and J Jason Kadem said at the Emmys when they accepted awards that they had both drawn from their life. My book is called Storyline, Finding Gold in Your Life Story, and it's oh, yeah. all about the idea of adding fiction to your truth. Right, so yeah. So you're not writing from an autobiographical place, but you're writing from a place of emotional truth. No, that's true. You have to kind of um, – I think sometimes people make the mistake, and I've, I've made it myself – uh, so I'm going to assume other people have made it too. Right, <laughs> but, right. But when you when you take a real story from your life, you have to figure out wh what's the most entertaining version yes. of that story, and it may not be the version mm -hmm. that exactly happened to you. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out, use it as a jumping off point, and then figure out, okay, where do I go? Uh, the the way that it happened to me may not be the most hilarious version. Right, right. So you have to figure. How do we make it so? Yeah, where yeah. do I do, yeah. you know part ways with the truth? And make it entertaining television. I, I wrote an episode of The Simpsons uh, a long time ago where Bart got caught shoplifting, which was based on something that happened to me when right. I was 13 years old. Right. And uh, ultimately, I did the story. Uh, I, I used a lot of what happened, but then I decided, like, well, what, what were my fears at the time? Because my parents never found out. Right. And I thought the most interesting thing would be if they did. So I kind of played out my worst fears of what if they had found out. Right. Uh, and um, we went the way of uh, that Bart feels like, like Marge feels like she's lost her little boy, that he's kind of committed kind of a grown-up crime, and, 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 and she's no longer coming in to tuck Bart in at night like a little kid, and where he had been complaining about being treated like a baby before, and then he kind he of wanted... missed it. Oh, I love uh, So it. it was kind of playing out my own fears of, like, what if my mother had found out, yeah. you know, that I had stolen this stupid, that's you know, record from the That's a great way to go into story. Yeah. I like that. I think that's terrific. Mm -hmm. I do. Now, you are an Emmy and WGA award-winning writer-producer. So take me into, when you think about your climb of where you started and when you hit those moments with the Emmy and the WGA award, what was that like? Uh, oh, it, you know, it's fantastic. You know, anytime you get recognized, you know, for your work, I'm sure if I was a, you know, a dry cleaner and I won dry cleaner of the year, I'd <laughs> right. be very excited too. Right. You know? So, you know, it's, it's always fun to, you're you know, hitting your peak. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, that, do you feel like there's pressure that goes along with that to keep up the level of like, once you win an award, 
Do you feel like there's pressure of, oh, my God, now I have to write the next best thing that's going to keep this going? Or do you feel like it just feels like, oh, great, now I'm recognized and maybe I'm a little more relieved in writing mm-hmm. because I know the acknowledgement is there? Yeah, no, for me, it's uh, I just feel like, oh, okay, time to coast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> We can ride this trophy for a couple of years and do a lot of very mediocre episodes. And take some risks, right? Right. Yeah, they uh, no, um, I, They're not going to take it away. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's already engraved too late. Uh, no, I don't uh, feel the pressure. I think you always feel the normal pressure of trying to do a good episode of whatever you're working on that week. Right. Uh, that pressure is always there and it doesn't fluctuate. Right. So there's uh, unfortunately now but, with the Simpsons, what what is your favorite part of working on the Simpsons? Oh wow! I mean, being in that writers' room is a blast because from something that I was so terrified of when I first started, and I was truly terrified. I I, I had been previously to that show. I had been kind of comfortable in a writers' room. I I'm not like a, a sticky performer or anything like that. But I was comfortable, you know. But that room had such a reputation as being kind of, you know, the all-star team of comedy writers. When I got there, I had psyched myself out so much, I was afraid to speak. Mm-hmm. And literally, I the first week or two, I would sit there all day and not say a word and just listen to all these brilliant you know, people like, you know, like Al Jean and Mike Reese and George Meyer and you know, David Merkin and, and Greg Daniels. And, and I'd, I I would be so intimidated. I always wound up driving home at night kind of going, OK, well, tomorrow's the day I'm going to talk. <laughs> you know, I'm going to say something good tomorrow. Um, oh, I love for people to hear this. Oh, That's yeah, yeah. I, I was scared. And then the longer you go without talking, the more self-conscious you become that you haven't spoken so you realize when you open your mouth everyone in the room is going to turn because they haven't heard your voice yet so then you feel like oh now it's got to be extra great uh so i always advise writers say something like right off right away just say anything you know ask about lunch or just get your voice in the room so people become familiar with it because i yeah i put crazy pressure on myself i was stunned when my option was renewed after that first season, right? <laughs> yeah, I that's was so I was very honest. grateful. Yeah, that's, you know what? But that that's so normal. Like, I love when people talk about the true, honest experience of what it is to be a working writer because it's fascinating to me. I mean, in interviewing people who are at the executive producer level, I remember one writer. I said, "So, what is your biggest fear when it comes to writing?" and it didn't matter how huge his credit list was. He was like, that someone's going to figure out that I don't know what the hell I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> and I was like, I love that. That is so, that doesn't change. And that fuels the writer. So I think the terror that you felt has definitely got to be something that you look at and you go, now I'm in a place where that terror has lessened, but maybe been in replaced by confidence. But still, I'm sure you still have your moments of terror and you use the fear. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I remember even because it got to the point where I was putting so much pressure on myself to pitch something in the room and I was censoring myself. I was kind of pitching to myself internally and then rejecting it as being you know, too stupid or hacky. And, and then somebody else would pitch the exact same joke and it would get this giant laugh and immediately go in the script. And then you can't say anything. You, yeah. you, you does, If you really want to look bad as a writer, go, oh, I had that. <laughs> you, right. you sound like a jerk. Right. So you have to kind of, you know, keep it to yourself and use that, you know, feeling of like, OK, you know, 
I do belong here. I'm right. thinking down the right road. Next time, uh, just tell somebody. Yeah, and I think, too, it's like the women. I think it's good for women to hear this because I think women always I, – I hear so much from female writers – that they'll say something and it's not really received by the room and then suddenly five hours later a higher up will say it and it's the greatest idea in the world and it's the exact same idea. Yeah. And and so I think it's a very universal experience. Oh yeah. The, climbing the, the ladder. There's a definite, you know, art or science or both to working in a writer's room. And uh, I always advise people like women or men, if you know you're a little soft spoken, you know, by nature, if that's your to try and, you know, take a seat that's a little closer to the showrunner. Unfortunately, people who are shy tend to sit in, you know, the, back. in the back of the yeah. room where it's yeah. the hardest to be heard. Right. Um, and I think if you sit a little closer, you won't feel like you have to yell your pitches because when you feel like you have to kind of stand up and yell them, it even puts you more out on the line of the fear of rejection. Right. So if you can get a, a seat that's a little bit closer to the showrunner where it's easier for them to hear you because you might there might be a lot of people talking at once and the showrunner wants to hear everybody. Yeah. I mean, you really do. You don't want to miss something great just because you couldn't you know, literally hear because the person. Because of your shyness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always tell people to try and move a little closer uh, to the showrunner. I think that <laughs> is great advice. With The Simpsons, what would you say, uh, which character do you identify with the most? Uh, it sounds like a cliche answer, but Homer uh, yeah. is is just so much fun to write. Uh I, I think there's a part of him and you know every man and uh, uh, and you know uh, you know he and he makes us look like better husbands and fathers at the same time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's just a blast to write because his emotional swings are so unpredictable and they come very fast. And uh, and you know and Dan Castellaneta does such an amazing job, you know, acting you know the part. And he uh, it, it, he's just too much fun. To write, there's so many great characters on that show that are that are fun to write for. But at the end of the day, it's, for me, it's still Homer. Yeah, no, I like that. I and I think that comes across. Now, as far as animation versus live action, from a writer's story standpoint, you already went into one thing where you said animation, you get to take a look at it later and you have fresh eyes. Are there any other differences, like how you approach story, on the two? Oh yeah, um, uh, and first of all, I mean, creatively with animation, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of creative freedom in animation to kind of really like fully imagine, uh, you know, a joke or a story point, or you know, in, in how you you know show it to the audience. Uh, you know, in in live action, you you have to talk about it more than you can show it sometimes because of logistical concerns and you know production constraints. But in animation, there's this kind of feeling of we could do anything. You know, if 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 going to you know China isn't funny, let's erase it. Let's go to you know India or something. So, That's great. Yeah. So and but I think also in animation, there's an obligation to use the form to its fullest and. We always had kind of a general rule on the sense that if, at the end of an episode, if it felt like you could have told the same story in the same way in a live action show, then we haven't done it right. 
And we would sometimes you know, go back into the script and kind of open it up visually a little more, maybe put in a dream sequence or a flashback or you know, something that you couldn't see in a live action show. Really utilizing the medium. Yeah, yeah exactly, because otherwise what's the point of having it animated? Uh, it, live action is, is fun in its own way. There's mm -hmm. a great um, immediacy to it. I love working with the, the actors. Um, and it's fun to try and tell the story uh, in, in a whole different way where you can't, you know, do, you know, certain kinds of jokes or, uh, you know, people can't just catch on fire or, you know, yeah. or that, that sort of thing or, you know. Uh, and multi-cam versus single cam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was, it's a, they work at different rhythms and, and the tones are different, but they're all, you know, fun to write uh, in their own way. I always, you know, the example for me is always like this, like on The Simpsons, you got you know, Homer strangling Bart as a like a running <laughs> beloved gag of child abuse on the show. Right. That's kind of a staple of the show. But if you did that same joke in a live action show, if, if Ray Romano was strangling his son on the show, it would just be horrifying to watch. Right. Uh, but in animation, oh, it's, it's funny. That's a great example. Yeah, yeah that's mm -hmm. a great example. All right, one more question, then we're going to go to a break, and we will come back and talk about parks and recreation. Um as far as comedy, like looking at how comedy kind of took a back seat for a few years and now it's coming to the forefront again. And it feels like, have to be honest, like looking at New Girl and Two Broke Girls, mm -hmm. um, it feels like people are, people need to laugh right now. Are you, How are you feeling about that? What is your interpretation of looking at the slate of when it went down for a while and now it seems to be coming back. Oh, uh, well, as a writer, I'm thrilled. Yes, exactly. More jobs. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'll, I'll work for a few more years. Yeah. But, yeah, it was a crazy thing. I mean, the idea that there might have been a period where people didn't like to laugh is just is insane to me. Yeah. I think the networks just lost faith. Right. And uh, because they you know, uh, they couldn't seem to get anything that you know that got any traction or they uh, but I also think they got very conservative in their comedy taste at a time when drama was kind of blowing open. Shows like 24 were coming along and doing things you hadn't seen mm -hmm. in drama before. Comedy was getting more and more restrained by uh, you know, broadcast standards notes and and everyone has to be likable. Everyone has to be nice. Everyone has to be a winner. Every, and that usually doesn't make for great comedy. Right. And I think the audience at home might have been getting a little bored with that you know, notion. I think flawed characters are a lot more fun to write and more interesting to watch. So I think there was just kind of a general and watering down. And probably helped in that way because you've got Tony Soprano, Vic Mackey, yeah. and then you've got Don from Mad Men and Walt from Breaking Bad and flawed characters are suddenly in the closer, Kira Sedgwick, really coming to the forefront of that is that humanizes and makes us connect more. Yeah, that pilot for The, the Shield, Vic Mackey's a great example. Mm -hmm. I remember watching that pilot and like, holy shit, he just killed another cop right. you know, in the pilot. Well, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody. No. But that, to me, is amazing television. Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, wow, where do, the, where do you go after you know, yes. your lead character that you've just met right. has killed a cop who seemingly did nothing wrong, right. uh, and yet they pulled it off brilliantly yeah. uh, all those years. And, uh, and those, yeah, those are terrific examples. But comedy, there was a constant pressure of 
well, the, the thing this person's doing is not very nice. It's kind of unlikable, and you just everyone just can't be nice to each other yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, so I, I that's what I think is a lot more fun in comedy. Uh, I think the mistake people make is you. It's not that every character has to be likable. You have to empathize yes. with the characters yeah. so that you are rooting for the outcome. But you can empathize with a flawed character. Right, yeah. And if you understand why they did this, you know, seemingly, you know, awful thing, uh, you, you'll go along for the ride to see, you know, where does it where does it go? I mean, Raymond was just like a, every episode there was usually a great conflict. Mm-hmm. Between two or more of the characters, and the most fun scenes at all, you know, of all, were when you just got the whole family together and they were all taking sides against each other. You know, if everyone was just being nice to each other, it would be boring. It would be a boring television. Right, right. No, and it reflects more our lives. <laughs> right, yeah. But or, some, somehow along the way, they started to think that the problem was, oh, it's multicam. It's it, it as if the audience is sitting at home. Knowing, you know, like what the uh, multicam versus single cam and editing stuff, they don't care. Yeah. They all they want to know is, do I like these characters? Are they making me laugh? That's yes. all they want. Yeah. Uh, and if they can relate to the show on on some level, even better. Yeah. But that's all they want to do is be entertained. There've yeah. been there've been wonderful multicam shows and terrible ones, and same for single cam, same for animation. I mean, it's it. It's all about you know the writing and the execution. Uh, so that's, but somehow they just completely lost faith in comedy as a genre, which was insane to me. But yeah, I, yeah it's great to see it coming back now. I agree. I agree. I'm very excited. All right, with that, we are going to take a break. We are here with Mike Scully, who is currently on the show's Parks and Recreation, which we will get into when we get back. This is Jen Grisanti. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. I love Parks and Recreation. I uh, certainly, you know, I know with I'm I'm a writing instructor at NBC, so I love it when I when I see great shows. How how do you like uh, working on the show? Oh, I love it. Uh, it's it's a great uh, it's a great group of writers, and the cast of the show is is just amazing. Uh, you know, Amy Poehler. Uh, I think is just like the the funniest person on television, <laughs> and uh, she sets a great tone on the set. It's a very fun, happy place uh, to go to work, uh, and it was fun for me. I, I came on to the show, um, I think halfway through the first season. Um, I was brought in by Greg Daniels, who I had worked with uh, previously on The Simpsons, and uh, it was the first time I had done a single camera uh, comedy, and I had never done the mockumentary before. Uh, so it was, it was funny that it was new challenges, for, you know, from a writing standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I found I, I really liked it a lot. And uh, uh, I was gone. I was there for season one and two and then gone for season three when they got the Emmy nomination. Right, <laughs> so, right. Uh, I'd like to think I'm responsible in some way for the show <laughs> being acknowledged. Uh, uh, and now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, back on the show now a couple days a week consulting and, and having a blast. 
You know, I'm curious about that because I always like exploring different ways in knowing that you wanted to go back to the show. How did you handle moving back toward it? Did you just call Greg Daniels or how did that happen? Uh, I had had a couple of conversations with Mike Schur, who's right. the showrunner on, on the show now. And, uh, you know, and we just talked about trying to figure out our schedules and because we had so much fun working together. We were trying to figure out a way to to uh, still do it. And, uh, you know, we came up with this uh, thing where I was able to go in two days a week and uh, it just happened to, to work out. So I've so got now, some downtime. I'm waiting for Napoleon to come back. I was going <laughs> to say you're you're on three shows right now. So are you're yeah. you're consulting capacity. You're an executive producer on Napoleon. So and and then you're consulting on The Simpsons and Parks. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's amazing. <laughs> I think that's a tribute to you. First of all, I think you tapped in on something that I think is good for all writers to know. Being easy to get along with and someone that people are excited to work with i definitely think contributes to success being asked back uh flexibility with working on three shows (laughs) it's either that or or people can only stand me for short periods of time i'm not (laughs) i'm not sure which is i'll go with your definition (laughs) i think that is great yeah no it's important uh you know for you know writers if you're going to you know, be asked back on a show. You know, a writer's room is a, is is a place. You know, it can be claustrophobic. Uh, you can spend you know twelve, fourteen hours a day in there, and uh, personalities. It it does come. You know, personality definitely comes into play. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've heard of you know certain writers before where you you may be considering hiring somebody, or and you'll check around. You you call around. You you, know, you read sample material, but you also make calls, and. You know, every once in a while, somebody will just say, yeah, yeah, they're they're really good. But, you know, life is short. And that's all they have to say. <laughs> that's all they have to say. Oh, OK, gotcha. Uh, yeah. It's subtext. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like, OK, maybe I'll find somebody who's equally as talented, but a lot easier to get along with. Right. Uh, so you don't want to be, you know, the problem child in, in the writer's room or, uh, you know, the person who kind of, you know, brings the energy of the room down or the person who only brings up problems but never a solution. Yeah. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff or, you know, any of the political bullshit that comes into play, like, you know, where, you know, the showrunner leaves the room and suddenly it's, you know, you know, there's people jockeying for position. And, you know, it's like, what's his name? Alexander Haig. I'm in control now. You know, it mm-hmm. becomes that, you know, th- I mean, that truly is a life's too short situation. And, you know, I don't and like where it gets around and where it gets around. Yeah. It's a small town. Yeah. yeah. So you want to kind of keep a, a, a good reputation and save your rage for the drive home. <laughs> <laughs> that is excellent yeah. advice. Looking at the now with the writers room on Parks and Rec, how uh, how does the comedy writers room work? Like you you hear stories that they're there until one or two o'clock in the morning and and they're you're in the room a lot. Like like wh- how does it work as far as parks and recreation? Uh, yeah, I mean that show. Uh, yeah, we do you know, work uh, some nights on the show. We don't go that like crazy late. Um, uh, yeah, there is, you know, I've I've been doing this for like twenty five years now, and uh, there was, used to be a lot of that. You know, working till two, three, four in the morning, and there were some certain people who believed that. That was when the magic happened, and uh, which I you know thought was just total bullshit. Yeah, uh, it I think, was just yeah, like, no, no, there's no magic happening here. You just don't want to go home to your family. Right, <laughs> you know? you're totally so, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but you know uh, you know you do it uh, to to you know, keep working yeah but you know if you if you know what you're doing you know you 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 want your staff to be happy you want them going home at a reasonable hour that way when you do stay at night if you have to put in a late night they know it's for a reason mm-hmm. and and you get much better work out of everybody when it becomes habit and you're just doing it every night and people aren't seeing their families or living any kind of a life uh, it, it's, no it's terrible. Yeah, yeah it's, everyone gets miserable. Morale goes way down. The quality of work dips, and there's a feeling of hopelessness that sets into the writers' room. Of it doesn't matter how hard we work, we're going to be here till midnight anyway. Right. And that's the worst yeah. because then people stop pitching, yeah. and uh, uh, it just becomes a real negative, you know, work environment. So uh, it's like a stall in the room. Yeah, yeah, and there's I've never like gotten the you know alleged connection between you know having to work till you know four in the morning and the quality of the work right uh, I think you know on a episode per episode basis there's times when you're gonna have to put those hours in but like Raymond uh, Phil Rosenthal uh, we would be you know out every day at like five o'clock mm-hmm Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Uh, and did, they did an amazing quality yeah, <laughs> show. They did. Uh, yeah, the first year of a show can be the toughest because yeah. that's where you're still kind of finding, you know, what the show is, where the strengths and weaknesses are. The scripts may need to be rewritten more heavily, uh, but then as time goes on, I think you get a handle on your show and what what it is, and then you can streamline the process. Now, I mean, the hours of Parks and Rec now are. are uh, much better because we all have a better sense of what the show is. In the beginning, right. you're still figuring out who are these characters and what are they doing and how, what kind of stories are we going to tell. And you're trusting it because it's being very well received. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's all kind of and, and the actors are also finding mm-hmm. you know their characters and that helps you know uh, yeah. with in the writing of it. So it all just starts you know clicking a little more and then you know if you do stay, it's for a good reason. And I never mind working late as long as there's a good reason for it. I uh, yeah no I I'm with you I I've ne- I never understood the two and four o'clock in the writers room I thought that has got to throw production off so much the next day as far as people's mental capacity after putting in that kind of time so I I think that's it. now it, segueing into like Napoleon Dynamite so is this the first show that you're a showrunner on uh, oh no I actually I ran the Simpsons for four years. Okay. Uh, uh, seasons uh, nine through twelve, which right. uh, most people consider the four most consecutive seasons of the show. Uh, right, right. Uh, but uh, no, and I've also uh, run uh, with my wife. Uh, we you know, complete savages uh, and the pits. I'm gonna. I love complete savages. Oh, thank you. I I'm going to assume the audience at home is standing up and applauding right now. So I'll, <laughs> I'll just have a moment of silence. No. Uh, uh, so no, I'm doing and Napoleon. You know, I'm I'm running that. So I'm you know I I like doing that. I I like. Once again, I like being the guy who uh, decides where we go for lunch and what time we leave. Because <laughs> so, right, right. if I have tickets to a hockey game, I want to know I can make it. Right. <laughs> it's the biggest perks of being showrunner. <laughs> Do you now, looking at yourself as a showrunner, what would you say a writer's point of view would be working with you as a boss? We're, oh, I'm a constant delight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. I do try to uh, I try to make it a very um, collaborative team effort where because I, I don't want people sitting there afraid to speak up like the way I was. Right. <laughs> I want them to feel like you know part of the you know the team, so everyone is trying to solve problems uh, when they when they arise. Uh, I want it to be fun, 
but I also, uh, I do have rules. Uh, one of my biggest rules is shut your fucking cell phone off. Uh, right. If I see you texting while we're writing a script, there's a very good chance you won't be here next year. Right, uh, good for writers to know about this. It, to me, it's become the biggest problem in the writer's room, Yeah, uh, our cell phones. Yeah. Because you can't be looking at the script while you're texting people. And I understand if someone gets an emergency phone call from home or, or the, any of that sort of thing, absolutely. But most texts, if, if I actually like took the phone and read what it is, it's you know it's all about you know boy sure is sunny out I you know I, I just had a big sandwich who the fuck cares you know you you're being paid a lot of money to write right. television right so save those you know those mundane so conversations here. for lunch break yeah. or you know that sort of thing uh, but it has become there's there's moments where you look around a room and you suddenly see like oh my god like eight people are on phones right now or iPads right uh, you know there was one show I was on where. Uh, the writer had an iPad going like underneath the table in the writer's room, and he was playing some sort of car racing game. But he had the audio on, on top of the fact that he was playing the he game. Had the he had the audio on, so we're pitching. And you just hear this. Like, what oh the, like, my at god! Least if you're gonna do it and hide it under the table, <laughs> shut the fucking audio off, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but I think, and uh, and young writers learn from. You know, when they start on a show new, they learn from the older writers. Mm -hmm. So if they see the older writers not paying attention, right, or having lots of side conversations, right. and not and uh, th you know that's what they think is accepted as the as as you know acceptable behavior right. that's professional. So you know that I am kind of strict on that stuff. But on the other hand, what I try to show to the writers is if we focus and get the work done, we get out at a reasonable hour. Mm -hmm. That's the payoff for paying right. for paying attention. <laughs> yeah. So um, and once they realize that you're serious about it, that you really are going to let them go at a reasonable people focus. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's you know. good, and I think what I like that you said a lot is, I think that. People can go one of two ways. Like if you had a bad experience where you felt terror or where someone humiliated you or, or was terrible to you in the room, a lot of I've seen writers either go the way of being more conscientious and compassionate of that experience or go to the opposite extreme of mimicking what was done to them to another. And it, it, it fascinates me psychologically. It really does. Like when I look at the idea of mentors and and I can't tell you how many people I've had in this podcast who are at very high levels who I would say, who have your mentors been? And I'll get this blank look. And it will be in, in you know, they'll say to me, you know, I've worked with some tremendous people, but I don't really know that I consider myself having been mentored. And and I wish that I was like in, yeah. and, and that kind of makes me sad because I sit there and I, you know, I mean, Aaron Spelling was my mentor for 12 years and I had a great, mm -hmm. tremendous mentor. And and so I, I look at it and I think and, and mentoring is a huge part of what I do. And so I look at it and I think, how could a person miss out on that life experience when it's such a great one? As you say, is it hard, like from your point of view? Looking at say the idea of being liked versus <laughs> discipline. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Being like, hey, I'm, I'm very needy. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to be loved. Right. Not, like isn't good enough. <laughs> I've heard very good things from people who work with you. Oh, I want oh, you to know fun. that. Well, yeah. th- that's very sweet. I, yeah. I, it's a fun job. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I have no right to be doing this. I, I, you know, like you said in the, in the intro. I mean, I, you know, I went to community college literally for half a day. You know. Uh, I really have no right to be here. I should be, you know, I don't know, pumping gas or doing something that I was doing at the time. Uh, so I, I, I always look at it as, you know, this is still a fun job. Even yeah. on its absolute worst day, uh, it's still fun to go back the mm-hmm. next day and do it again. Yeah. Uh, and I've been doing it you know, 25 years now. That's amazing. And I still get a kick out of it. It's fun when something works. It's aggravating when it doesn't work. Uh, you know, you'll drive home. And I can't. Shut it off. I mean, sometimes you you think of things in the car, and uh, I, I always tell writers when they're if they're particularly when they're new on a show, if you really want to become indispensable to the show, I mean, you know, obviously be pleasant to work with, be respectful of other people when they're pitching, you know, treat them with the same respect that you want when you open your mouth, and uh, but also always be you know be thinking you know stories, stories is. That's the thing you well, we'll need the most. As a showrunner, yeah. you know, there comes that point every season where it's about halfway through the year and you start to run out of stories. And you start to really treasure the people who are still thinking of stories without you telling them to do it. Yeah. Um, That's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, or somebody, you know, on the weekend thought of something that was a fix to the problem you couldn't solve on Friday, mm-hmm. and they email it to you. It's kind of nice to know, oh, wow, somebody's actually thinking about it during their off time. Right. Uh, and I, I try and follow those rules, too. Uh, but you know, stories are so important. You burn them up so fast. And jokes, we can get jokes. Right. You know? Stories are really, really hard to come by, good stories, good emotional stories, and that's what you, you really want. And I, I learned also on... Simpsons from like the very first time we did a story retreat together, which was also terrifying because all the writers sit in one room and and Matt Groening is there and, and Jim Brooks. And the and I remember going to my first one and I had pitched I, I had just written down like a paragraph, you know, on a page of like one story idea that I had. And then I think Al Jean and Mike Reese, uh, who had been on the show for years, were pitching their first story. And it was amazing. Yeah. Their story was so thoroughly worked out with the beginning, middle, end. It had jokes. I think it might have had a song. Right, <laughs> it was, it right. was the most entertaining story pitch I'd ever heard. And then I kept looking down at my little paragraph like, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> how do I embellish this? And I realized you know, the more you have prepared going in, the, the, there's a better chance that you'll get to tell the story you, the way you want to do it instead of it being twisted in a million different directions. But it also, it's a tremendous help to the showrunner mm-hmm. that somebody j- didn't just come in and go, hey, what if the family went camping? Yeah, that's probably a, a, a viable area for a story, but that's not a story. Right. You know, so, right. Uh, no, I think that is, that, that, that is incredible inv- advice because I definitely, I agree with you. Like People are so used to the idea of, Oh, you pitch a, a seed out there and suddenly people run with it and what was your idea turns into something so much different right. than what you had thought it was going to be. But if you come and prepared with a well thought out story, there would be a less of a chance of that happening. Right, yeah. yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So a lot and a lot of times like a show like Parks and Rec, 
sometimes like while we're working on one story, you'll think of something that could be a funny story, like but not for that particular episode. Right. So you want to make sure you kind of get it out there before you forget it. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, you know, ideas kind of fly through your head very quickly. So you'll just throw it out. And if it sounds like an interesting area, we'll just put like a sentence on a card and stick it on the board. So we can remember to go back to it yeah, at, I like at some that. other time. Cause, I do. Yeah, the, the fun thing, the storytelling on, on Parks, and Mike Schur is great at juggling. There's 10 regular characters on that show, and you have basically 20 and a half minutes yeah. every week to tell a story, and you try, oh you're try. you trying God. to service all of these characters. And so I've learned a lot uh, from him on that show in, in terms of how to do that kind of storytelling right. where you're, you're kind of jumping from one to another to do an A, B, C and frequently a D right. storyline, uh, whereas, you know, Simpsons, we do A or A and B, and Raymond was just A stories. We didn't do B stories. Interesting. Uh, so it's all, you know, wow. it's a different thought process, and you kind of think of different ways to tell the yeah. stories. Yeah. So uh, And also looking at, like, when you look at B and C stories, how thematically can they elevate the A story? Yes. So trying to stay within that type of arc as well. Yeah, and when you, you when you get really lucky and, and you can you can figure out a way for stories to dovetail mm-hmm. uh, near the end, I that's that's just, like, found, you know, goal. <laughs> that's, right. That's amazing. And sometimes it's intentional yeah. from the beginning because you might be working in the same theme, but other times you're just kind of in the middle of writing and you're like, holy shit, wait a minute. There are we, can, we can actually make this work. <laughs> and then we look like geniuses for uh, planning it all along. Right. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Now, you've talked about Everybody Loves Raymond um, a little bit, but give me an idea of, so that had to have been a show where you, I would imagine, drew from your life a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of times you didn't even know you were doing it. You would just be telling a story in the room. And uh, and sometimes, you know, it could be kind of an intimate story about your marriage or family. And then one minute you're just telling a story to entertain the other writers. And then suddenly Phil Rosenthal would get this look in his eye and you go, oh, shit, <laughs> this is going to wind up being an episode. Uh, and, you know, a so lot be of careful about sharing your weekend. Oh, yeah, because he would he would finally just suddenly like point at you go. That's a show. <laughs> they're, right. they're like, oh, God, how do I explain this to my wife and my parents? And, uh, you know, this the the uh, I think it was Steve Scroven said he was once having an argument, uh, you know, with his wife about something. And in the middle of the argument, she just said, and this better not wind up on the fucking show. <laughs> so, there was always that risk when you kind of opened your life up in that room. Yeah. But that's one of the reasons the show was so great yeah. and struck a chord with so many people is. Or if somebody would just pitch on something that had happened to them, and then you're all kind of sharing your own experiences in that same arena and how maybe it went with your wife or family, and you just pull stuff together, and next thing you know, you have you know a great episode. Probably the one of the best examples, there was an episode written by Tucker Cawley that won an Emmy. It's just called The Suitcase, mm-hmm. and it's just about Ray and Deborah come back from a weekend vacation, and there's a suitcase that gets left at the bottom of the stairs. Right. And it becomes this kind of passive standoff between them in terms of who's going to put it away. And, like, two weeks go by, and it's still sitting there, but they're not confronting each other about it. They're telling yeah, they're telling Robert, and they're terrible. telling the parents. But the suitcase becomes this huge you know, issue between them, and, and it was based on something that had happened in Tucker. And then you, you twist it and exaggerate it you know, mm-hmm. for comedic purposes. But 
you know, we heard a lot from, you know, audience on that show that yeah. they've had that kind of moment in their yeah. marriage, whatever it is, that they just like, well, I'm not doing it. And the other person is saying, but no one's saying it to each other. Yeah. And that makes yeah. them feel not as isolated. Yeah. So that's a huge part. Yeah. Or you get to play out a kind of a fantasy marriage scenario. There was an episode where uh, Ray was complaining that Deborah was always late when right. they were going somewhere, which is a you know, very common, you know, argument in marriage. And he finally, like, he confronts her with it and says they're going to this thing Saturday night, and if she's not ready, like, 6.30, AIS, which is ass in seat, uh, he's going to leave without her. Right. Uh, where it's like, you know, everyone has made that threat at some point yeah. or another. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I should point out, in my marriage, I'm the one who's always late. But, uh, <laughs> but in the episode, he actually follows through on it. And when we did, like, the act break scene, which was Ray putting the car in reverse and going out of the driveway without Deborah. The whole studio audience is like, oh, <laughs> they just couldn't believe it. But like, I think for all the guys, it was kind of vicarious thrill. Yeah. Uh, well, there's so, something yeah. I think when you uh, I remember there was something I posted on Facebook the other day and I thought it's just like what story does. It's almost like it diffuses for other people to hear it. It had something to do like thank everyone who's been in my life for making it so fantastic. And I want to also thank those who walked away for making it even more fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I could not believe how many people responded that's to great. that. And it was, that's what comedy does. Like there's an, uh, that's what story does. It's the idea of looking at somebody else. And, oh my God, I'm not alone in that experience. Right. Yes. You know, yeah. that other people have gone through that. And this is like a relief to yeah. be able to know that looking at your career, uh, what advice, would you have for newer writers with regards to writing now, starting a writing a career, as well as you you have hit on navigating the politics in the writers room. Uh, yes, uh, and the cell phones and iPads. Yes, you've <laughs> talked about that. If you were starting your career today, like knowing what you know now. Wow. Uh... Let's see. Well, first of all, don't waste as many years as I did. I, I kind of spent the years from like 18 to 25 trying to get up the nerve to do something. I also, I spent a lot of years just like riding around in a car drinking, listening to Foghat for, for some reason thinking there was a career in that. <laughs> <laughs> and then not realizing until I was 25 that I need to do something with my life. Uh, and, and now, you know, I'm 55 now. And I do wish, like, boy, I wish I had some of those years back. I wish I had gotten an earlier start at it. Uh, so, I, you know, if it's a passion of yours, you know, definitely go after it. Don't waste years doing stuff you hate uh, and wondering, you know, what if uh, I had done this. Uh, I think that's part of why I'm drawn to storylines sometimes that are kind of what-if stories, like what if this had happened, because I used to play that out in my head all the time. But uh, if you're starting your career now, it used to be in comedy, you know, you used to need like one spec script. Uh, now, you know, you need two. A lot of agents will tell uh, young writers to write original things, submit pilots. Um, I don't know where your other guests have weighed in on this. I'm very against that. Uh, I've I, had guests weigh in on both sides. Oh, really? Okay. Because yeah. yeah. uh, if you're writing a pilot, it may be something like based on your own life. And, but, you know, I need to know if you can write the characters that I have and, and tell a story the way our show does. Yes. I, this story may be very true about your life, and that character may be a funny representation of your uncle. I don't know, and I don't fucking care. Right, uh, right. And, and also on the on the lazy side, um, 
reading pilots is incredibly time consuming because you have to like read all these long character descriptions and 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 all that crap and, and you so you don't really know is this a, a you can read a, a script and say oh this is a funny pilot you can figure that out right but when you're pressed for time and you want to tr- you know, I I can read three or four spec scripts of existing shows where I know the characters in mm-hmm. the time it takes me to get through a pilot right. Which you, which is huge. Time yes. management is huge when you're staffing. Yeah, yeah. So well, I can I, sit down with a script for you know whatever, like a, you know. Um, what are your a favorite family specs or, right now to read? Oh, um, I, 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 I do. I like Modern Family, uh, Sunny in Philadelphia, Office, Parks and Rec. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving. Do Parks and Rec? Will they read a Parks and Rec for Parks and Rec? I don't know what uh, what the policy is, is yeah. on the show. A lot of shows are very reluctant to read specs for their own show, right? For a couple reasons. One is legal, legal for legal yeah. purposes is the biggest one, and also a lot of times when you read a spec script written for your show, in your it's head, be amazing. yeah, because <laughs> the show is always. Yeah. First of all, you don't want to believe that somebody can just sit at home. Write <laughs> something better yeah, than I'm you. I'm sitting here 14 hours a day, and you did it in front of the TV. Uh, but you always kind of view the show a little differently than right. the audience does, because right. you know like what you went through to get every episode to where it was, so you're closer to it. Um, but uh, you, know, you want something that that showcases, you know, your ability. So you pick something that you think you can do a you're good job about. on. Yeah, because yeah. you know, I wrote spec scripts. You know, like I, I wrote like 11 spec scripts, which is insane right i love that though whenever whenever i tell like a a group of aspiring Mm -hmm. writers that i wrote 11 spec scripts i can always hear this discouraged sigh in the room (laughs) no it's i'm going to tell you as a current executive that says to me as a former current executive that says to me that you're a writer like i tell i like my right now in my consulting business i tell writers you should have a minimum of four scripts one spec that is current meaning the last two years one to two specs and two original pieces and and i said i am there are plenty of people who will say you don't need to write specs anymore i said that's not true at all i'm going to tell you in staffing over 15 shows i had showrunners who would only read spec scripts because of exactly what you're talking about and so uh, that has not gone away. And now I do think there are some showrunners who only want to read original because they want to know the original voice. And that all depends on the concept of the show that they're staffing for. Yeah. You know, like The Walking Dead. I think Glenn Mazzara said he read like 70 pilots, you know. So that, for a show like that, I think the original voice does carry more weight right, yeah. than understand because there are not a lot of shows that you're going to go, oh, if they can mimic that show, they can mimic The Walking Dead. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it just depends. Like who is looking at that? But I, uh, I definitely think um, I, I think that information is is great. Yeah, I tend to read uh, one script. Yeah. Uh, instead of two, I believe that if they wrote one, you know, really good script, I always know if I ask the agent for another script, they'll send one. Right. And there's a good chance I'll say, well, it wasn't quite as good as that first one, and which makes sense because, like, yeah, that's why they sent it first. Right. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I usually read one script. I frequently don't read the entire script. Right. Uh, I will read, uh, you know, 10 pages if I don't like it. Right. If I'm not engaged by 10 pages, I'm out. Right. And on to the next script. Uh, frequently, I'll read like 20 to 25 if I do like it and not make it to the end, but just like the writing so much that I know I want to meet the person. I think that's, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah, I, I, that way I get to read more So you are a reader scripts. for the most part, but they have to wow you in the first 10 pages. Yes. Uh, that's, Which is even more compassionate than some people. <laughs> yeah, well, because a lot of writers have, have said to me, like, 
oh, but but the second act gets a lot better. Like, well, too bad I didn't make it there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to have seen it. Yeah. Unfortunately, the first act sucked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's as far as I'm going to go because right. I don't have time right. to see if the script gets better. Yes. Uh, so when you're writing spec scripts, don't fall in. You know, be a real harsh critic of yourself. Right. Um, don't just assume. Well, the third act is so funny. Once they get there, you know the job is mine. Yeah. And, then, and if you're lucky enough where somebody calls you in for a meeting, that's a whole other art. Yeah. Is the meeting with the showrunner, because everyone does it a little what differently. What thoughts do you have on that? Um, don't start by saying, you know, what's wrong with your show? Uh, I've had that said to me, <laughs> and I I, in my head, I'm not to get yeah, negative. <laughs> I've had it said to me on more yeah. than one occasion, and in my, I nod politely and pretend I'm curious, but in my head, I was like, "No, asshole, who doesn't stand a chance of getting a job here? Please tell me <laughs> what's wrong with uh, my show." Um, it is it's it's tough because there's uh, I and I feel for the writer in that position. I really mm-hmm. do. It's easy. It's kind of much easier for the showrunner to be in that interviewing position. Right. When you come in, there's kind of this feeling of like you're on The Tonight Show and you've got, you know, seven minutes to score and right. tell three funny stories. And uh, but I, if you can come across as a uh, as a pleasant person, first of all, that you that where no one's concerned, you're going to be trouble to work with uh, is, is a great start. Be on time. Those sorts of things. And. You don't have to pitch story ideas, but I think there is an ability that has to be learned to be kind of like a, a, a funny guest in a talk show, um, uh, which is an unfair pressure to put on uh, writers because a lot of times you're in that people just don't naturally do that, but they could be terrific writers. And that, to me, is up to the showrunner to figure out, okay, that's, the interviews are not their thing, but the reason they're here is because I love their writing. So you're already predisposed to like them because you like their script. So right. don't say anything that will make them hate you right. <laughs> is a great start. Don't blow the start. You're, yes. You're, they want, you want the meeting to work as much as they want the meeting to work. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. And give, give them a fair chance to, as a showrunner, you know, give the writer a chance to loosen up a little and be comfortable. And you know, don't be taking calls and doing things that will make them more nervous. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's fair that some I've heard of showrunners asking writers to pitch story ideas for their show when you're, high, you're interviewing them as prospective writers. I, 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 first of all, I think it's against Writers Guild rules. <laughs> but secondly, I don't think it's a fair position to put a writer in. But I think you can talk in general terms about the show. You know? right. Make sure you know the show that you're in there to talk about. Right. Know, know the characters' names. Know the dynamics. Right. So if you're asked, what did you like about the show? You can answer, you know, knowledgeably. You don't have to bluff your way right. through it. Right. Uh, and it's tricky because particularly on uh, new shows, frequently you'll see the pilot right before you go in for the interview. They'll show it to you in another room. Uh, you know, try and pick out a few things. Remember a few things that you can talk about in the interview that, that you liked in the pilot. Right. You're not there to critique it as a pilot or as a TV show. You say, oh, I like the dynamic between these two characters or I, I like that actress a lot. She's really funny or whatever your favorite moment was. Uh, in the pilot. Because it shows that you care and that you're prepared yeah. and that you have an opinion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that you were yeah. really paying attention. Yeah. Uh, and it's tough sometimes. I, mean, I, I I saw a pilot once years ago and it was just, you know, not a good pilot, but right. I still had to find some stuff to say. <laughs> like, oh, uh, Positive thing. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you, you got to remember, you're, they asked you there because they like 
your work. So yeah. you don't, you know, you don't want to blow it. No, uh, I, I, I yeah. think that's very, very true. And staffs are more limited than ever, like size-wise now, budget-wise. Yeah. It's it's even it's harder, harder to put to a group in. together. What advice do you have? Now, it's interesting because I'm a writing instructor for a diversity program. What advice do you have for the staff-level white male and female writer as far as getting in? Staff for, for white writers? Yeah. Uh, um, first of all, stay white. Uh, <laughs> it's, it works. You don't have to change <laughs> to get a job. Uh, oh, that's it. I've never been asked that question. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because they have said, you know, and certainly I think there it 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 all comes down to talent. We all want to believe, but certainly it's almost gone to the other extreme. Some people feel because there are so many diversity programs that the lower level slots very often do go to the diversity oh, candidates. Yeah, and true. as a result, it's become more difficult for the white female and male staff writer to get a job, to get that first job. Uh, yeah, there's probably uh, some truth to that. I guess uh, if you can go to uh, you know, go to like Ancestry.com and trace it back and see if you maybe have a little Cherokee blood or something, it's right. not a bad idea. Right. Uh, and if so, make it clear during the interview. <laughs> well, and I, I would have to say, you know, the interesting thing I can say at Writers on the Verge is we I feel like we have gotten more flexible with diversity. Like diversity could mean you have a different lifestyle. You have a different religious belief, and as a result of that religious belief, it made you feel isolated. And it has become all about show us why your perspective is different. And that is on the writer to be able to show that. So I, I like to believe all the diversity programs are loosening up to where it's not just the color of your skin. It's do you present a diverse perspective that will add to the television show? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. That I think that's that's great advice, uh, and um, you know, I think ultimately, you know, I don't like knowing when I'm reading scripts like, Any oh, oh this comes from a right. minority writer. I don't, I, you know, I, if I had my way, there'd be no names on them at all. If 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 you if you could do that, but um, uh, you know, I think the work has to speak for itself. I, Parks and Rec probably has, uh, I would think it could be the most diverse staff. Uh, in television right now. Oh, that's good. NBC uh, will love to hear that. That's no, I, I mean, they, they know do. that obviously. So but that is good. but you but you work with these people yeah. and you know why they're all there and yeah. it has nothing to do with you know uh, with race or you know sex or anything. They're there because they're good, right? Uh, and which is the best reason, right, to be there. Yeah. Um, so, so you never had any problem with that going up the going up the ladder. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I had you know dry spells where I couldn't find work. Right. There was a stretch of time um, where I, uh, I I didn't work at one point for I don't know six or seven months, and I was getting very scared because uh, I had a family, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I wound up like writing jokes on uh, America's funniest people, <laughs> and uh, and my brother Brian and I, who, and he's a writer on Family Guy. Great. Uh, but we were both there, and we were, suddenly we were like writing intros for videotapes of people doing arm farts and Elvis and Pre- and, and we were sitting like, what the fuck happened to our careers? We had so much potential. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you just you, know, you keep you know slugging it out, and uh, if 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 when people are critiquing your work, you, you give somebody your script, they take the time to read it. If they give you notes on it, because I, I, this happens a lot, and uh, I'm good at. No, I'm I'm fine. Um, 
what happens a lot, people will give me a script uh, and they'll be brutal. You know, I, it, don't sugarcoat it. Let me know what you think. And then you, you give like three notes and then they blow up and uh, and they don't want to hear it. And, and you're not going to benefit from that. You have yeah. to listen. If you trusted the person and respected them enough to have them read your work in the first place, at least listen to what they have to say. Does it mean they're right? No, not necessarily. Right. I mean, you can have 10 people read a script and get 10 different opinions. Right. On the other hand, if you hand your script out to 10 people and you start hearing the same notes consistently, there's probably something to it. Yeah. And you should take a look at it and maybe go back and rethink it and do some more work on it. And uh, hear the note behind the note. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't want to yeah. do that. They want they just they want you to say, I love it. Yeah. And the part that they forget is that when you go to read the script, that's what you want to say, too. Yeah. Because it's the most fun thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you that means you enjoyed reading the script. Yeah. Uh, and it's fun to tell people that you love their work. It's much harder to sit them down and say, I have some problems. This is what you needs know. to be stronger. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, learn to. You know, learn to take criticism. Criticism, yeah. yeah. And you know, I'm. A, it's funny because I'm in a position now where, like at Parks and Rec, I just turned a, a script in uh, about a week ago, and now we're gonna do a rewrite on it. And right. I'm gonna, you know, I'll be in the room, and some of it will get thrown out, right. and that happens. And then at Napoleon, I'm, you know, running the show. Then I'm the one throwing out somebody else's work. Yeah. Or so you tell us about the concept for Napoleon. I forgot to ask you that earlier. Oh, um, well, the, the it's the, based on the ending. Based on the film, yeah. yeah. And uh, Jared Hess uh, and his wife Jerusha, who wrote and directed the original film, had been asked repeatedly for a sequel mm-hmm. to the movie, and he could never come up with a way to do it that that felt fresh and original, as fresh as the first one did. Mm-hmm. He felt like the audience would go in kind of knowing what to expect in the second one. Uh, and so he could never figure it out. Then he started talking about TV, and he had the thought animation might be a fun way to kind of continue the adventures of Napoleon Dynamite. Mm-hmm. Uh, I happen to be a huge fan of the film. Uh, I saw it at least a half dozen times that year that it came out because right. you know, my, uh, my kids uh, took me to see it first, and then I started going back on my own. And... Um, that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it changed. I mean, suddenly, like my family, the whole that whole summer, they it that movie changed the way they talked. They were everything was flipping sweet and freaking awesome, <laughs> and, uh, and we were cursing as a family, much less. Uh, <laughs> um, but so Jared and I were uh, put. We had a meeting, and he told me that he was thinking about uh, doing this as an animated show, and I. You hear a lot of ideas where people are like, this could be animated, and you kind of, eh, I don't think so. But this one made sense to me. Yeah. And Jared was able to get uh, the whole cast from the film to do the voices uh, uh, for the series. And we, oh, Yeah, so it's, every, it's everybody from the movie, and we teamed up with uh, Rough Draft Studios, who does Futurama. Right. And they did uh, half of the Simpsons movie. They're terrific animators. Right. And um, I mean, we put together a little presentation about a year and a half ago. And then Fox ordered six episodes, and it finally comes on this January 8th uh, after The Simpsons. Great. So we did six. That's a good starting point after The Simpsons. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right right in between Simpsons and Family Guy. Great. Uh, oh, that's a good block. Yeah. yeah. So we're very excited, and we're just starting to see the episodes in color now. The animation right. is coming in. And we're uh, we're really happy and excited. And we also got some great uh, guest stars. Uh, Amy Poehler, <laughs> great, was great, gracious enough to do one. And, and uh, uh, 
Jermaine Clement and Sam Rockwell right. will pop up in episodes. Right. So we're pretty excited about it. Oh, that is that's fantastic. All right, so boy, you have lots of Parks and Rec. Everybody needs to watch on Channel Four on Thursday nights at eight thirty. Thursday nights at eight thirty. It's funny with your DVR how you how you forget what's yes, on yeah. what night. <laughs> um, and then we've got Napoleon Dynamite coming up in January, January eighth on Fox. And then and the Simpsons, which will outlive all of us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> how long has it been on now? I think we're in twenty year twenty two. Oh I think. God. Yeah, yeah. I know it's not <laughs> brilliant. I love it. It'll I love pass. It. Um, the 500th episode will air in February oh of next gosh. year. Oh my gosh! Has yeah. any show gone that long? I think all, like only Gunsmoke at this point. Uh, but yeah, that's, oh, that's it. That's huge. Yeah, we we passed Ozzy and Harriet a few years ago, which Ozzy and Harriet had over 400 episodes. <laughs> and, uh, I don't think I can remember I one. I, I didn't know. Yeah, I think oh there, my gosh. There, there's never like a classic like Ozzy and Harriet yes. episode. Like, remember the one with the the button fell off his cardigan? Oh, right. that was great. Was right, like, isn't that funny? Yeah. I wonder how many I Love Lucy did. Uh, there's definitely like over 200. It was in the 60s. You know, shows did 39 new episodes a year. Oh my gosh. So it didn't take long wow. to like hit like a hundred yeah. show, like a show like. You know, Gilligan's Island, I think, ran three seasons, right. but there's a hundred of them. Right. Uh, or right. like the Dick Van Dyke shows. Right. And, uh, there's a lot more than people well, think. Syndicators must have, that must have been a happier time then. Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, because they would run 39 Bigger new relief. ones a year and yeah. 13 repeats, and yeah. that was the cycle every year. Oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. Okay, for our last question, any last thoughts you would like to share? Can you narrow it down a little? Uh, All right, last thoughts on the idea. I don't know what you're capital pun. <laughs> I know I should give you a little help here. The idea of 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 people going out there and wanting to be a working writer, like the idea of, do you have thoughts on how do you balance personal and professional? How do you, you know, any, anything along the lines that will help people recognize. It's worth having this job and having 25 years later still joyfully going into the work um, along those lines. Oh, yeah. Well, um, as far as like the new writers starting out, um, the, the ways of breaking in now are so different, uh, you know, because of the Internet and sites like, you know, Funny or Die and, and uh, that kind of thing. There's a chance and, and you can make your own little short films now that can act as a calling card along with your written material. There's different ways to get noticed. Uh, the UCB has become a real, you know, great workshop for oh, aspiring for writers. Okay. Oh yeah, they. Uh, I, I. There's a lot of great writers coming out of that program, uh, and um, and really smart, funny people. So I, I would strongly advise any young writers to go check it out. Uh, you, you do some sketch writing. You work with other writers. You work with performers. Mm-hmm. Um, great. You know, stand up is not a necessity. You know, I did a little bit of it very early in my career for about two years. I I did it quite poorly, uh, but on the other hand, I learned a lot about how to write a joke, and I learned how to streamline uh, jokes because I found that when a joke is written on paper, you can convince yourself that it's a, a great joke, but if you have to say that joke to a crowd of people, you realize all the unnecessary words that are in your joke and why it's taking forever to get through it. So I learned a tremendous amount about how to streamline jokes and say it with the fewest words possible. Uh, Twitter actually is a great uh, thing for that. And I I got 
Um, I would believe it. Yeah, yeah. because well, you have 140 characters. So I you... test out things on Twitter all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I started on it about two and a half months ago. Uh, 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 two writers actually uh, from Napoleon. And you have a huge following for two and a half months. Ah, uh, well, people have been very good to me. You know, uh, I I was turned on to it first of all by uh, Joe Chandler and, and Nick Wagner who okay. write on Napoleon. Right. Uh, and then uh, Alex Sulkin from Family Guy, who is kind of like one of the gods of Twitter. <laughs> right. Uh, was very generous in um, recommending yeah. me to to his followers and and that sort of thing. So right. yeah. Uh, um, so that that's a great way to just kind of keep up. That's I, how you came here. Yes, that, exactly. Yes. Yeah, Twitter yeah. is how Mike and I met because I raved about his moderating on the Emmy panel. And he saw it and he followed me and I followed him back. And I said, hey, would you love I would love to have you as a podcast guest. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a great, yeah. and you kind of meet people like there's a, a guy uh, who writes for Modern Family named uh, Danny Zucker, uh, right. who I've always heard was hilariously funny and a great guy. We've never had the opportunity to work together. Right. We still haven't met, but w- through Twitter, we kind of have, and we have ah, a little correspondence. That's great. <laughs> uh, that's so great. it's kind of fun. It, it exposes you to other people's work. Mm-hmm. And it also like, keeps your, you know, for me, you know, like I said, being, you know, my age now, You'd want to keep your joke writing chops right. sharp, yeah. Because uh, I would also give advice to older writers. Are you asked uh, about younger writers? No, I said newer writers. Oh, newer, newer writers. Newer writers. Well, yeah. for for older writers right. you know, like myself, it's important to kind of stay current. Yeah. Uh, you know, still you know stay true to your own voice. I right. think you know don't don't try and write stuff that doesn't sound like you. Don't you know try to you know slip in your version of what you think is. You know, young and hip, because inevitably you will miss the mark. Uh, but it's good to keep up with what's going on, you know, in the world, you know, on television, whatever it is. And and kids are great for that. When you have kids, they kind of pull. They keep it, you it, fresh. Yeah, it, yeah. It, if you get involved in what interests them, yeah, you learn stuff that ordinarily you wouldn't know. Right. Uh, you wouldn't you know, deliberately expose yourself to it. Right. Uh, and you find sometimes you see things on the way up. I. A few years ago, one of my daughters, this is probably like four years ago, she said uh, she wanted to go to the Hollywood Palladium to see uh, somebody called Lady Gaga. And and I think it was like $10 to get in or something. Wow. I, and I just uh, I, w- I went into idiot old dad mode. And I'm like, we're not driving all the way to Hollywood and paying 10 bucks to go see somebody called Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, you know, two years later, you know, she Massive. owns yeah. she owns the music business. Yes. And I that was like that was me letting my age, you know, get the better of me and putting myself behind the curve right. where my kids saw something coming that was going to be great. Yes. So I listen to them a lot more now. They've turned me on to so many different things, you know, Cat Williams and different videos. And so they kind of help keep you young. Uh, I think that's uh, so. Yeah, because you don't want to be, you know. The old guy in the room who's always pitching references from 20 years ago, or um, anything you can do to stay fresh. Yes, and I, and I do yeah. think it's. I have a lot of writers who will start at 40 or 50 who've never written for TV. Or oh, film really? Wow. And who are interested in going in that direction? And it is an interesting thing because you, I believe that strong writing will find. Uh, a place if if the writing is that strong and the idea is that strong it it can happen right it's not yeah. to, it's not to say the challenges will more be there 
when you start later. But I've definitely I've had guests that started that had whole other careers and started at thirty eight or forty and oh, made wow. and made a career. You know, so oh, that's very yeah, encouraging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I think it's great for people to hear. Well, I want to thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. There's so much tremendous information that you gave. I am so grateful. I'm so happy we met on Twitter, and I'm so happy that we were able to find a time that worked. And I'm very excited for my listeners to hear what you have to say. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Yeah, this was great. Okay, we... I think your audience would be shocked to know that you do the show completely naked. I (laughs) did not expect that. (laughs) Little did they know. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be a secret. Um, So this is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. I want to, let's see, what do I have coming up? I have, um, I want to give a shout out to tvtracker.com. tvtracker.com is a place where you can get all the latest information on current shows and development. Uh, You pay a monthly fee, and it is terrific. It's a wonderful resource. That is www.tvtracker.com. And coming up, I have a, uh, I am teaching for the GLAWS, which is the Greater Los Angeles Writers Society, on Saturday, October 22nd at 2.30 p.m. So you can check my website or go to their website. Uh, It's GLAWS, Greater Los Angeles uh, Writer Society. Uh, And and I'd love to see you there. And other than that, uh, I think we are covered. So thank you so much for joining us. And I am excited for you to hear this podcast. And we are out with Mike Scully, and this is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. Let's do closing theme. <laughs> da da da. <laughs> Grisanti. <laughs> <laughs>